There's a man named Steve Gilman, and he wrote an article that I read recently. He used to work as a repo man, and he would, in the middle of the night, go to the homes of people who had missed numerous car payments, and he would repossess their cars in the middle of the night. He wrote this article, and it, and it you know, caught my eye, obviously, as I was looking at it. And one of the cars he had to repossess was from a woman who had won a million dollars in the lottery, and she wasn't making her car payments. And, and uh, so he found that odd, and he ended up writing this article on 21 stories of different folks who had won the lotteries and what had happened. And, and uh, the one that struck me the most was there was an individual who won $31 million, and two years later, it was all gone. And uh, instead of enjoying this great financial freedom, um, sadly, a lot of these, these individuals ended up in really tragic circumstances because instead of the money being something that was liberating, um, it ended up being like kryptonite. And it took their disordered hearts and inflamed them, uh, just really amplified the, the, the struggles and the things that they, they had before. And as we come to our text, which is, this, which is Galatians 5 this morning, we're going to look at something that Paul champions very strongly called gospel freedom. We're going to look at our freedom in the gospel, our freedom in Christ. And uh, unlike uh, freedom and uh, liberation to just kind of uh, do what we will and be our own gods, which would, which would cause for our hearts to be inflamed and, and cause for us to, like those lottery winners, um, take those things that are disordered and only amplify them by, by being our own gods. Gospel freedom looks like something much different. It's powerful. It's liberating. Uh, but it's often not what we, what, what we think when we think of the word freedom. Now, I'm saying this because before I read this, this text, I need to set it up. Because we're coming in mid-conversation. Some of you are, are uh, visiting this morning or you're new, newer to KW Redeemer. And uh, we've been going through the book, Paul's book of Galatians. So here in about 20 seconds is, is the summary that gets us to why Paul writes what we're about to read. It's that Galatia was suffering from false teaching. The gospel is this. Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. His perfect life satisfied the perfection of God's law. Everything that God requires from us, he provided for us in Jesus Christ. Christ's perfect life, substitutionary death, and divine resurrection is the hope for the Christian church that we are acceptable before God, not based on the life we're living, but based on the perfect life Christ lived, which actually infuses and propels the life that we're living. That's the gospel. The false gospel was, no, it's the life Jesus lived and the life you're living. No, it's, it's, it's Christ's perfection and your imperfect attempts. It's what Jesus was up to and what you're up to that saves you. Which, of course, erases assur- assurance entirely and leaves everybody in the state of, well, I hope I'm doing enough and how much is enough because if it's really based on just what, not just what Jesus did but what I'm up to, then who could be saved? And so the church in Galatia was confused. The gospel is substitution. The false gospel is contribution. Any teaching that comes in and attempts to add to what Jesus did for salvation is dead wrong. False. Christian faith is not a lifelong endeavor in trying to make God happy. Christian faith is because in Christ Jesus God is already satisfied, I'm now free to live to God's glory. And I desire to please him, but not because it's earning anything, just because of sheer thankfulness for what I've been given in Jesus. And so that's the argument that Paul's like fighting viciously for. We come up to Galatians 5. I'm about to read the text. And Paul now gets to the, 
it gets to the place where he now shifts from the grounds for the gospel, which is what I just told you, justification in Christ, to the goal of the gospel. God's grounds were Christ's perfection. Now, what's God's goal for Christ's perfection? And we get into that here in Galatians 5, starting in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. Though through the spirit of faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And that the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you who are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. This is God's word. Now kids, you've got your sermon outlines there. Here's the sermon in a sentence. Look down at your notes. For freedom, we have been set free to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This morning, as we unfold this text, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the basis for our freedom, the goal of our freedom, and the implications of our freedom. So first, the basis. What is the basis of our freedom? The basis of our freedom is the perfection of Christ, which is what we've been talking about. If you look at verses 1 and 2, you're going to discover that the gospel of Jesus Christ is either or. It's not both and. It's either our faith is in Christ or it's not. It's not both and. It's not in Christ and one part Jesus, one part me. You'll notice that all throughout the New Testament, the way that the grammar is constructed is that Christ is always the subject, we are always the object. You kids learn this in, in school. Your teacher will say to you, she'll read a sentence and it'll say, Johnny caught the ball. And then they'll say to you, now, you know, what's the, uh, you know, what's the subject and what's the object of the sentence? And you're like, well, Johnny is the one who did the catching of the ball. The ball hit, you know, the ball hit Johnny. What's the subject of the sentence? Well, the ball is the subject of the sentence, and Johnny is the object that got the ball in his forehead. Right? This is how they teach you English. The whole entire New Testament is constructed in a way that Jesus Christ is always the subject, and we are always the object on the receiving end of what Christ has done. And even when you get to the second half of all the epistles, where it's giving this church instruction on how we are to live, give us, giving us instruction on our Christian ethics, giving us instruction on how we are to raise our children, all of that instruction is, is still not making us the subject. 
it is still flowing from the subject, which is Christ, doing something to us. That is the object that is now flowing out. Do you see this? It's critical because if you read the Bible like you're the subject, you're going to interpret it wrong somewhere in the neighborhood of 100% of the time. Because you're always on the receiving end of what Christ has done in living from that. And so that's verse 1 and 2, the basis of our freedom. When Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free, it's because Christ is the subject. And so because of that, we, don't, we no longer obey God under an enslaved burden of having to earn from him. We obey God from a completely different premise. We obey him from freedom and from thankfulness. Now, at first glance, everything I'm saying to you, everything this text is saying, for freedom Christ set us free. At first glance, it seems like, well, the Bible just removed all the incentive to live a holy life. I mean, if Jesus did everything, then why should any of us do anything? I mean, shouldn't we just kick back? Doesn't grace make you lazy? Uh, is grace like peanut butter? You just kind of spread it on everything and you just kind of sarah, sarah, live how we want? No, it's not like that at all. It's actually because we're free that our hearts are liberated to now be reformed to begin to love what God loves and want what God wants and live in a way that's actually tr- truly freeing and truly liberating. This is, the, this is what verses 1 and 2 give us. See, he says the purpose of being set free is freedom. Isn't that interesting? The subject of our freedom and the means, I'm sorry, the subject of our salvation and the means of our salvation, the noun and the verb for the English people in here, all of it is freedom. You see this? If you walk down the street right now, if you walk down King Street and ask people, excuse me, I just got a question for you. Um, do you think the Christian faith is about freedom? How many of those people do you think are going to say, oh yeah, that's totally what it's about? I mean, Christianity is totally about freedom. In fact, I have friends who are Christians. You know what they say to me all the time? They say to me that um, Christian faith is that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has set them free, and so now they live these free and loving lives. You know, that's not the conversation the culture has. It's not their fault. You want to know where they got that from? Us. (laughs) Because historically speaking, you might say, well, Paul, that's a scathing criticism on the church. Well, I love the church. I don't know if you've noticed you know, with a bunch of people. We all planted one together. I love the church. I'm pro-church. But you see, historically speaking, the church has always feared this freedom. And when, they, and when the religious sects of the church feared this freedom, they tried to curb the freedom. So they, they said, well, okay, we're afraid that you're all going to live these wheels off lives, so we have to curb this grace. Well, and we know that it says for freedom he set us free, but we want to make sure that we hammer um, the fact that, you know, that, that freedom looks like obedience to God, and if you're not obeying God, then maybe all the bets are off. The problem with that, of course, is that it led up to this thing called the Reformation, where the the church over time had added all of these things to Jesus to keep the church in line. And by 1517, October 31st, 1517, Luther nails it to the door and says, oh, wait a minute, this is actually all about Christ alone. Fifteen years, well, a little after that, more than 15 years, but in 1545 after that, after the Reformation, a council got together called the Council of Trent. This is just church history. And they said, we've got to do something about this grace through faith in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone stuff. We've got to do something about that. So the Council of Trent wrote some documents. If you're ever having trouble sleeping, you can read them. Sometimes they're online in PDF form. And as I was reading through them, one of the phrases struck me. I'll never forget it as long as I live. Because they were trying to do something to curb the grace and they got to do something about this grace alone through faith in Christ alone stuff. And they wrote, and I, this is a direct quote. They wrote, let him who thinks that faith in Christ alone is sufficient for salvation be cursed. That's the opposite of what I just read, but that's a direct quote. So historically speaking, the church has always operated, not the whole church, but I'm, I'm just saying that 
when we get afraid of our this freedom, the perfection of Christ, the one ditch is, of course, to just live crazy, which is ridiculous and stupid and not even close to the gospel. But the other ditch is the legalism ditch, where they say, okay, we're to curb this. That's what Galatia was dealing with. So that's the basis. The cross is not a starter kit. The cross is a finished work. And that's what Paul was fighting for here. He's saying, if you teach and preach and teach your children the cross is a starter kit, got you started, and now it's up to you to take it, the whole, take it to the house, you know, so that at the end of your life you're okay with God, you've missed the gospel. And he's so passionate about it. He, he says there, if you look at verses, verses 7 through 12, he's so passionate about it. He says, I wish the people that taught this would castrate themselves. Well, welcome to church this morning as we talk about this. Is he just being angry? Is he being rude? Why would Paul, why would Paul say, if you were adding to Jesus, I wish the people who are teaching that stuff would just castrate themselves. When you study the language, you realize this is, this is an idiom. It's a way of Paul saying, I wish that they would not reproduce. I don't want them to reproduce. I don't want this teaching to reproduce. I want it to be cut off. So hence he uses the word castration. Of course, you know, those of you who are new to church or new to the Bible, you're like, what are we doing? This is crazy. What is going on? We just read a text about circumcision, and now we're talking about castration. This is the weirdest church I've ever been to. Maybe I should clear this up. See, in the Old Testament, there was the Old Testament law. The sign that you were God's child in the Old Covenant was circumcision. So what Paul is saying is Christ has fulfilled all of the requirements of the law, so circumcision is not a thing now, right? Baptism, like you saw this morning, is the new sign. It's better, in every, it's, it's better covenant in every way, the grace of Christ. So the reason why Paul is using this language is he's saying, since you guys are all about bringing back the law, I wish I'd just cut the whole thing off. Just stop it. Which leads us to the next point, the goal of our freedom. So the basis of our freedom, kids, if you look at your notes, the basis of our freedom is the perfection of Christ, which I was just talking about. The goal of our freedom is to be united to Christ. I mean, that's the whole goal. He wants us to be free, and the way for us to be free in God is to be united to God. True freedom is going to have to look like God's plan from the beginning. God's plan from the beginning was to enjoy life and for us to create civilization with all of our gifts and flourish in the city with God at the center. He is our God. We are his people. We're using our gifts. We're using our creativity. We're living to his glory. That was the original plan, right? Sin comes in. Damnation occurs. So God moves in redemption. But now we're in this trajectory towards restoration. So trusting in Jesus Christ re-narrates your life. It, it puts you on a new narrative, Without Jesus, everybody's life narrative is the same. Death in the end. You say, well, that's morbid. I'm not being morbid. I'm being rational. This is, a, this, is a, this is just a rational thought process of humanity and the fragility of our life and of this planet. Without Jesus Christ, the trajectory is, is death. With Jesus Christ, the trajectory is life after death. With Jesus Christ, the trajectory is not floating on clouds, doing nothing, you know, uh, like cartoon coloring book Christianity where we're just cupids floating around. No. It's being united with God, being restored here on this earth that he will restore in bodies that will be restored, living to the glory of God. We, he is our God and we are his people. That's the narrative. And so Paul is trying to get the Galatian church back on that narrative to say, guys, you're abandoning true freedom. 
And you're exchanging freedom for this burdensome legalism and moralism where you're going to wake up every day and wondering and hoping that you're doing enough. Verses 4 to 6, if you look at it, he, he uses this scathing language. He says, falling from grace. You guys have turned from Jesus Christ, from Christ alone, and you've adopted Jesus plus your rule-keeping? You think Jesus plus your rule-keeping is going to save you? What does he say? What does he call that? Falling from grace. Well, that's terrifying. Well, I have good news, so you can relax if you're thinking, I knew it. Paul's been a grace preacher for two years, but then right after the two-year KW Redeemer anniversary, I knew it. He was going to buzz. He was going to... It was a bait and switch. It was all grace until now, and now we're falling from grace. No, no, no. If you read verse 4 by itself, which is a horrible way to read the Bible, by the way, verse by one, verse by verse. But if you read verses 4 through 6, it's not that you're falling from grace because Christ is lessening his grip on you. It's falling from grace grace because you you have released your, your grip on the freedom of the gospel. This is not a conversation about salvation. It's a conversation about trust. I can prove it because in verse 10, if you keep on reading, Paul says, I have confidence that you're going to take no other view. In other words, Paul is saying, I know you're saved. I know your faith is in Christ. I know you're Christians. I'm confident you're going to take this view, but you've abandoned your freedom. You're saved, but you're not free. You're burdened. How many of you have had that story over the course of your Christian life where you're like, I know, I know, that, I know that the day that I die, I'm going to be with God but I feel burdened. I feel burdened by uh, somebody imposing spiritual disciplines on me. I feel burdened by my own spiritual disciplines I'm imposing on me. And I'm not making spiritual disciplines wrong, by the way, because they're gifts. But wrongly understood, it's a, they're, it's a burden, which is what they were doing in Galatia. And so Paul says, listen, you're falling from grace here. And the fall from grace is you're, you're, you're forfeiting your freedom. And so the good news of this... Verse 4, verse 4 would be terrifying by itself, but verse 5 and 6 say, and if, again, if you're new to the church and that was the whole circumcision conversation, what Paul is saying is, you didn't, be, you didn't behave in a way that got you saved. So you're not going to behave in a way that keeps you saved. Christ alone is our sufficiency. You didn't behave your way in, you're not keeping yourself in through your behavior. It was Christ's perfect obedience that got us in, and now the obedience in the life that we're living is from that freedom. And Paul says, if you abandon that, now you've fallen from this grace. And now you're, and now you're, you're burdened because you've returned to the religious rule-keeping of uh, these law-preaching false teachers that were, that were in the church. So it's not about Christ letting go of his grip on the church. It's about the church letting go of their grip on their freedom and the peace that comes by, by Christ's grace. Everything I'm telling you right now, if you read 1 John chapter 2, you'll see it again. The apostles all agreed on this. The apostles agreed if somebody turns and they never, ever, ever return, they, they, they never understood grace in the first, they hadn't received grace in the first place. But the people who, the people who turn and you say, oh, what's going on, who return, it's not a situation of you're in God and now you're not, and you're in Christ and now you're not, and now you're saved and you had a horrible week and you did this terrible thing and now you're not. That's not how, that's not how adoption works. And this is the picture of, of us being saved by spirit of adoption, and we're united to Christ in that adoption. That's the whole goal of our freedom, is this union. And so, uh, Paul goes on to say in verse 5 there, you'll, you'll see it, he talks about us awaiting righteousness. What does that mean? What is he talking about? This hope of awaiting righteousness. In the English language, the word hope is very weak. And in the Greek language, the word hope is very strong. So when you're reading the New Testament... In, and we're all reading it in English, and you see 
something that's talking about hope, we will often read it like, I hope it doesn't rain. I hope I make the cut. I hope I make the team. I hope when I get there, the store is still open. What that means, what you're saying is, I'm not certain, I'm just hoping that it is. But that is not how hope is used in Greek. In Greek, hope means things happen. It's assured. I have the hope of this. That's how, that's how Greek uses the language. So the goal of our freedom is being united to Christ, which gives us hope, right? this incredible gospel assurance that we're God's kids in his hands because of what Christ did, which propels now great, a life of love from great freedom. And it, and it releases us entirely from our acceptance being based on our performance. And none of us have any relationships like that. If your friend texts you, hey, you want to have coffee? And you don't reply. Hey, did you get my text? you want to have coffee? And you don't reply. And they call you and you don't pick up the phone. Uh, that relationship's on its way to being very stressed and strained and possibly over. If you're, if you're married here and you stop actively serving and caring and loving your spouse... None of our relationships survive that kind, of, that kind of thing. We have to, for lack of a better term, perform. You can't not perform at work. You lose your job. You can't not perform. The reason why the gospel is so scandalous is because it's saying, what it's telling us is we are accepted before any performance. Therefore, the obedient and loving lives we live are free from all conversations about performance. How many of you little kids have ever jumped on the, off the stairs to be caught by your parents or by your brother or sister? You jump off the stairs, yeah. When Isaiah was really little, I used to call him Superman because he was this tiny little guy with this really dark black hair and these bright blue eyes and little guy. And I'm like, hey, Superman, jump off this. And I, Isaiah would jump off the stairs and I'd always catch him. And I remember one time, he, I wasn't really kind of looking and paying attention. He just jumped, yeah. And because in the mind of the child, there's no version of my father dropping me. That's the hope we have in Christ. That's the assurance of the gospel. There's no version of your father dropping you. The, the Apostle Paul is trying to invite them back into this rest. The basis for our freedom is the perfection of Christ. The goal of our freedom is being united to Christ, which leads us to the final thing is, what are the implications then of this freedom? So kids, look down at your notes again. The implications of our freedom is that life is fully enjoyed under the lordship of Christ. To, to really enjoy freedom is to actually be under his lordship. Go back to verse 1. It says, for freedom, you've been set free. So for freedom, noun, Christ has set you free, verb, right? Freedom is the end and the means of Christian faith. And the question is, freed from what for what? Well, I've been freed from sin and death for a life under Jesus Christ's lordship. See, if you read this wrongly, and, and, of course, the one ditch is legalism, which I've been talking a lot about. But the other ditch is lawlessness. And that's a ditch where they say, well, for freedom we've been set free. Uh, and so that means I'm free from, I'm free from you know, Christ's lordship. I'm my own lord. I'll do whatever I want, and God will accept me anyways. That, all that demonstrates, if that's your understanding, is that you don't understand grace. Grace would never produce that. It would, the great, this scandalous grace I'm telling you about would never produce the desire to live indifferent to the one who saved you in grace. The scandalous grace of Christ produces in us the desire to be loyal to the one who saved us in grace, apart from our performance. It's precisely what it does. For freedom we've been set free. None of us get to decide if we're going to worship. Every human being worships, we're only deciding what we're going to worship. 
everybody lives for something, everybody gets out of bed for something, and everybody has something in their life that if it was taken away from us, it would devastate us. If we obtained it, we would be truly happy, and whatever that thing is, that's what we worship. You know, idolatry isn't always bad things. Idolatry is often good things that we make ultimate things. Of course, the problem with that is that we put expectations on things and crush them because they can't be God, or they, or they crush us because they can't meet our expectations. So gospel freedom is not freedom to be God. That's, that, that, that's the wrong reading of the text. Gospel freedom is not, I'm free. That was our problem in the first place. Paul is saying, for freedom you've been set free. Don't go back to the yoke of bondage. If you decide that freedom in Christ means you can be indifferent to God's law, you can be indifferent to the guidance of God's word, you're kind of not here nor there, you know, lackadaisical, maybe I'll worship Jesus, maybe I won't, maybe, maybe gathering together as the church matters, maybe it doesn't. I'm so free, I'm also free from Jesus. Do you see how weird that is? That's not freedom. That's, that's, a, that's a kind of a scary autonomy. See, the thing is that the refusal to recognize authority and then to assert yourself as your own authority is not the definition of freedom. That's actually the definition of anarchy. So if I decide that the freedom of Christ means I'm now autonomous, I'm, I'm living in this weird anarchy. Notice in verse 1, look back down at it, immediately after he says, for freedom, Christ has set you free, he uses a military term, stand firm. What's up with that? It's important. It's because our freedom in Christ is assured, but our freedom in Christ is also fragile. It's fragile. It's not fragile in the sense that we would lose Christ. It's fragile in the sense that we could live burdened. It's very fragile. Galatia was losing it, and that's why he's writing this. He's saying, you got to pay attention. you got to remember and preserve what this actually means because this gospel freedom can be lost. Your salvation can't be lost, but your gospel freedom can most certainly be lost. That's, they were losing it in Galatia. That's what Paul goes, what are you doing? What are you guys doing? And the reason why this is so important is because when we have these moments of suffering from gospel amnesia, we go back to things. We go back to that in verse 1. It says the yoke of bondage. It's like going back into ourselves and shutting the door behind us. You know, for many of us, we, we come to faith in Christ and many things fall away and there's some things that plague us and, they, and, they, and we struggle with that sin for years and years or even our lifetime. You know, for me, constantly struggling with anger is, is such an embarrassment and there's things that fall, fall off quickly and that did not. And I used to deny that I had an anger problem because I would say, well, people with anger problems flip tables and smash things and throw things. That's what angry people look like. But because I don't do that, I don't have an anger problem. My problem is, no, I do have an anger problem. The problem is, I'm, what my gospel amnesia, forgetting Christ and forgetting the freedom of the gospel, makes me revert, I'm talking about Paul Dunk now, reverting back to needing control. I need to be God. And when things are not in my control, when I don't have control, I get angry. It's like, it's such a reflex action it's, it feels like it has me. And so I'm, you have a different story. I'm talking about my sin, but you have your own sin that you, that you struggle with. And what Paul is getting at here is he's saying that the freedom, our, the freedom from the penalty of our sin is assured because of God's grace, but the freedom from the effects of our sin is fragile because our hearts are still disordered. So you see, I'm free from the penalty of my sin of anger, but my sin of anger is... It, uh, my, my freedom is fragile because if I don't continually reorient my heart to rest in God, I'm going to want control. And my control is going to manifest in anger. 
You have a different story. If you're not sure what it is, ask one of your family members, and they would be glad to help you after the service today identify your, what your sin problem is. Okay, if you're sitting there and you're like, I just can't seem to think of anything. I, I can't believe this pastor has an anger problem. Well, when you find a church and the pastor is not a sinner, let me know, and I'll let you know you found a heretic. Okay? So, moving on. Stick to the text. Okay. So this is what Paul is getting at, is we are free now from keeping the perfect standard of God's law, but we're not free to live by our own standards. If we live by our own standards, that's not going to be freedom. We're not going to flourish. So we live today in light of this certain and guaranteed future glorification of Christ, which is amazing and it's beautiful. So what does this gospel freedom look like then? I mean, what are the implications of all this? If the basis of our freedom is the perfection of Christ and the goal of our freedom was to be united to him, then how does that play out? In verse 13 and 14, he tells us. In verse 13 and 14, he talks about living this loving life. Loving others. He says the whole law is summed up in one word. And he gives it to you in a, sen- in a whole sentence. Which, which, he, which, of course, he got from Jesus, because Jesus said that, right? That f- for us to keep God's law, it's to love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. None of us can do that. We need grace. Right? Thankfully, God's grace covers us, because we're not doing that perfectly. But also, God's grace is reforming and renewing us so that we do that increasingly. See, if you're rebellious, you're going to say, grace, grace, and more grace, and I'm going to just brag on my sin because Paul said brag on our weaknesses, and you're just going to wallow around in the shiza, and you're going to be like, you know, it's all fine. Well, that, that's not a picture of freedom. I'm not going to dispute that you're saved. Of course you're saved. If your faith is in Christ alone, you're saved. But that sounds miserable to me. It doesn't sound like freedom. But then over in the, then over in the other ditch, we've got the crossing all the theological T's and I's and we're like theological mechanics we know where every bolt goes in the engine we got it all figured out but we're not free either it's like we've never driven through the country with the wind blowing in our hair enjoying God's grace because we're freaked out that we're not doing enough which is of course as Paul is saying irrelevant so our freedom looks like loving others living a life of love is not the gospel But living a life of love is what the gospel produces. It's so liberating. It's so free. So that we can love one another, care for one another, be honest, have a culture of grace and compassion here, and not comparison. So that afterwards, if if your week was lousy and everything caught on fire, and you're having a coffee and somebody goes, hey, how you doing? You can say, my week was lousy and everything caught on fire. But if you're not free in the gospel, and you've connected your identity to your piety, then somebody's going to say to you, how was your week? And you're going to say, <laughs> bless to me, stress. Everything's incredible all the time. And it's not at all. The gospel liberates us and frees us. Not to stay stuck in the sin, but to increasingly, and more and more by the glory of the Savior, live free from the implications of that sin. Which is going to look like being more loving to our spouses, to our children. When we go to work tomorrow, to our staff. Some of you have to go to, some of you have some things to deal with this week that are like code red hard to deal, to deal with. But the gospel frees you and liberates you to go into your vocation and operate in such a freedom that your, that your, 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 your sense of identity and, and everything is not wrapped up in this thing. It liberates you to love and to serve and to, and to be loving. Some of you are heading into recreation this week, right? I'm heading into baseball season. I'm going to start coaching again with some folks. And, th- you know, and that recreation is going to be formed by the freedom of the gospel. You know, I was on the, on, last year was hilarious. 
I remember uh, at one game, you know, and Little League Baseball is like a Disney movie because you're wearing these ridiculous uniforms and you, you look ridiculous. Like, like, a, like we're going to go out and play, right? You've got to wear the whole thing. You know, it's like, oh, little Timmy, you know, hurt his thumb. Huh? Don't worry, I'll go in for him. I'm, I'm, I'm already wearing the uniform. It's so weird. But then some of these coaches, they get intense. You hockey guys know this. You football guys know this. It's, it's like, this is like the ma- this is Major League Baseball. I remember being on the mound with one of the other coaches, and he's going through, and he's like, your pitch, your pitch count's at 39, and the pitch count can only be at 33. And I'm looking at little, there's little Timmy there, you know, looking up, blinking it. The pitch count, and he's going on I just thought, there. here we are, we're standing here in these ridiculous little league uniforms, bro, and like, you are so wrapped up in this thing. It was just like an out-of-body experience. I was just like, this is weird. And so I judged him, because of course I'm way better than him, right? You get that's where the story's going. You thought you were going to say your pastor's so holy, his identity was in Christ, and, uh, and that other shameful... No, no, I was there having this self-righteous moment, like, oh, man, I can't believe that you... And then I realized, I'm like, oh, man, gosh, yeah, I'm so much better than you. Only I'm not. Oh, boy. You know, I have those ridiculous little league moments all the time, and so do you. If you can't think of any, this afternoon, why don't you ask your family around the dinner table, hey, where is it that I have gospel amnesia in my life and I'm not loving? See, that's the implications of this beautiful great grace, and I close with this. A man named Connor Gwynn uh, wrote an article in Mockingbird magazine, and it was beautiful on, on just this, this uh, what true freedom looks like in contrast to what we think that it is because of course paul is saying in the first 12 verses don't lose gospel freedom and then in the end he's saying don't abuse gospel freedom you just liberate it. you enjoy life most fully under the lordship of jesus not under your own lordship so Connor Gwynn writes this in the wilderness one of the lies of the devil was that jesus could have it all with no consequences and the devil uses the same lie today i can have as much as i want and there are no consequences well, of course, there are consequences. There's obesity at epidemic levels. There's almost guaranteed climate destruction as a result of unbridled consumerism. And there's a pervasive loneliness that creeps into our lives as the things that we consume, hoping they will satisfy us, don't. The gospel frees us and liberates us in such a way that under the lordship of Jesus Christ, life is enjoyed most fully. And now we come to Lord's table, the bread and the cup, which is a reminder of this freedom, which is a reorienting work in our heart, which reminds us of this great scandalous grace. It's scandalous, but it was costly. And it bought the price for us to enjoy true freedom, true liberty. And that freedom and liberty, church, looks like more and more our hearts being set free from the vices that cause us not to be under the lordship of Christ, but to be under the lordship of our, of our own hearts. We are liberated and freed from that. God's grace is the form that God's love takes for us, and God's grace is the fuel for our love for others. For freedom, we've been set free to enjoy God and glorify him forever. Let's pray.